Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. As we finish 2018 and we head into 2019, I wanted to take a little bit of time together, take a, a pause uh, through our series in Judges. And I wanted to devote our Sunday this morning and our Lord's Day next week to really assessing this last year and moving into the next year and asking God to help us as we enter into 2019. People make resolutions, people make commitments, people make promises, people have desires of all sorts, all sorts of goals, and all of them have in mind the desire to be happy, the desire to, to live the next year to its very fullest. And that's what I desire for our church. That's what I desire for each and every one of you, to live life to its fullest, to live life in a way that would be considered blessed. Not in the frivolous hashtag blessed that Twitter would have, but a deep, biblical, abiding blessedness. Truly blessed. How can we live this new year as truly blessed men and women? How can we live this new year assured that we will live life the way that God intended for us to live it? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because the psalmist is going to answer that question in Psalm chapter 1. So let's read it together and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Psalm chapter 1, a psalm written by either David or Solomon, says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask, as we ask every Sunday, that you would be pleased to have your Holy Spirit, our helper, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We want to delight in your law the way that this man delights in your law. We want to be blessed. We want to prosper the way biblically prospering is defined. And we want to glorify you and magnify your name. But we need your help. We're asking things that are too grand for us to be able to accomplish. So we need your help. And we rely on the promises in your word that as your word is opened, it will not return back to you void. It will not go forth in a meaningless, empty way. It will accomplish exactly what you have intended for it to accomplish. So may your word go forth with power this morning, accomplishing the purposes for which you have it to accomplish. And may your Holy Spirit grant us understanding, opening our eyes, to behold the wonders found in these verses. 
We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Psalm chapter 1. Why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why is it the very first psalm at the outset of the book of Psalms? It's the quintessential psalm. It's poetry, it's instruction in wisdom. It cuts through all of the issues of life and makes everything very black and white. It's wicked or righteous. That's all there is. There's no middle, there's no gray, there's no fuzzy. But it does it so poetically, so beautifully. It's proverbial in a sense because it's wise instruction, but it's poetic because it's a song. It's like a beautiful song with lyrics that have wisdom so inherent inside of them, but you can hear them in a beautiful way because the Psalms, after all, are songs. We need to remember that the Psalms are songs because I think too often we go to the Psalms and we just look for instruction and instruct us they will, but they're also songs, they're poetry, they're meant to be expressive. And so if we only see the Psalms as instructive, I think we're missing some of what the Psalms have to offer, expression, beautiful expression, lament in many Psalms, jubilation in others. These Psalms are meant to instruct our hearts and give us greater affections and expressions that are true to what the Word of God says. They're meant to teach. They're meant to give instruction. They're meant to give expression. And Psalm 1 does that amazingly. It sets the tone for the entire book of Psalms. That's why it's at the front end of the book of Psalms. Spurgeon himself said that Psalm 1 was the text from which the rest of the Psalms is merely a sermon. It's the text that the rest of the Psalms seek to explain. Thomas Watson said it may well be called a Christian's guide, Psalm 1, for it discovers the quicksand where the wicked sink down to perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. It clearly lays out for us two paths in this life, righteousness or wickedness. Only two kinds of people characterized by two ways of life and characterized by ultimately two eternal destinies in the end. We ask questions from this text. What is the characteristic of a righteous man? What is the characteristic of a wicked man? What is the eternal destiny of each? And which am I? Who am I in this text? But I want to start in verse 1 by asking the question that I believe the psalmist wants us to ask. He said, there's a man and he is a blessed man and I think the psalmist wants us to say, how can we be like that blessed man? But first we have to ask, why is being blessed such a good thing? My Bible says in verse 1, how blessed, literally in the Hebrew, it's blessed is the man, blessed. It's two words, blessed in a plural, the blessednesses. This word asher in Hebrew, in the plural here, the blessednesses, it's eshrei, and uh, one commentator on this word Eshray says, the sages reserve the exclamation Eshray for people who experience life as the creator intended for it to be experienced. To live as a blessed individual is to live life the way God meant for life to be lived. It's to do life the way God wants it to be done. It's to be truly happy. Another translation could be, how happy is the man? Oh, the happiness is of this man. Truly happy, truly contented, not because of a six-figure salary, not because of a clean bill of health. Those things are not bad. They're just not foundational to true and lasting 
happiness. This psalm describes a happiness that runs so deep that when you get the phone call and the doctor says to you, there is something on this scan and we need to bring you in because we need to start prepping you for surgery. You can still be happy. When you lose everything, you can still have joy. You can still have satisfaction when your boss says that the company is going under and hands you a pink slip and says, this is it, we're done, I'm sorry, you need to leave. You can still be satisfied. This is not a happiness that is empty-headed or giddy. It's not based on experience, it's transcendent. Can't be touched by even the most severe of life circumstances. That is the kind of man or woman I want for all of us to be. Blessed. So, how can we be this individual? The psalmist gives us three ways to live a life that is blessed. Three ways to live this blessed life. It's very interesting because the first way that he describes is a negative. Don't do this. Instead, do this. I would think if I were to ask, okay, how can I live life in the way that it's supposed to be lived? You'd give me three things of what to do. And this man starts off with, the psalmist starts off with, the word of God starts off with, if you want to live a blessed life, this is what you do not do. So number one, let's call it this, resolve. If you want to live a life that is blessed, resolve to live differently than the world. This is verse one. How blessed is the man who does not Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. If you want to be blessed, the first thing that you must do is resolve to live differently than the world. Don't let their philosophies influence how you think. Don't let their goals be your goals. Don't let their hopes and dreams be your hopes and dreams. Don't live for what they live for. And you notice the threefold progression here in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not do three things, walk, stand, or sit, in the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinners, or the seat of scoffers. Notice the progression. It goes deeper. Wicked people, or ungodly, your Bible might say, your translation might say. They're known for what they do not do. They're ungodly. They are not oriented towards God. They don't do good things. Next step down is sinners. They are known for what they do. They're known for how they disobey God. They do what God hates. And then finally, scoffers, they mock God's way. They not only do wrong things, but they encourage other people to do wrong things and mock righteous people. This is beautiful Hebrew poetry where uh, it's parallelism. We'd call it progressive parallelism where it's stacked upon each other and it gets progressively deeper. By the way, if you know the Psalms, you will know a good portion of the minds of the New Testament. You think of the Apostle Paul. He's a good Hebrew man. He knows the Psalms. You remember in Romans chapter 1, there is a progression, right? A progression of people who do not believe in God. They deny that God is there. Then they start acting in corrupt ways, and then they give hearty approval to others. That's the exact same progression that we have in Psalm chapter 1. That progression is seen here, and the psalmist says, if you want to live a life that is blessed, do not live like the world. This is not the life that God blesses. A life that God blesses is one that is not lived like the world. Do not be involved in these things. Other psalms that give the exact same truth, Psalm 119, verse 104, from your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way, every false 
path. Psalm 119, verse 128, I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything, and I hate every false way. Or Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Don't go down that road. That will not lead to blessing. Some people might say, well, does that mean we have to build monasteries and separate ourselves from the world? Well, no, logically that's impossible. If we're going to remove ourselves completely from the world, then we cannot obey God's other commandments to reach the world. This isn't an issue of associating with the world. This is an issue of assimilating with the world. God's not saying you cannot have unbelieving friends. You must. You must reach out to them. You must grab them with the gospel. You must be a neighbor to them. But you must not let what they live for become what you live for. Your affections will not be their affections. You can't be sucked into the lies that the world is constantly preaching every second of every day. You must rightly see that path of wickedness leads to death. John Calvin says it this way, No man can be duly animated to the fear and service of God and to the study of his law until he is firmly persuaded that all of the ungodly are miserable and that they do not withdraw from their company and they shall be involved in the same destruction with them if they don't. They cannot be involved in their company and if they are, they're going to be drawn into the same destruction. Are you firmly persuaded? Are you firmly persuaded that, as Calvin says, all of the ungodly are miserable? If we're honest, sometimes it's hard to believe that. The psalmist even says, I look around at the world sometimes and I see the wicked prospering and I think it's been in vain that I've kept myself pure. But then he remembers their end and he goes, no, 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 they are not truly happy. They're truly miserable. You have to purpose to live differently if you want to live a life that God blesses, living life the way God intended for it to be lived. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We're going to come back to this verse in a moment, but Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. That word conformed, that's the word for being pressed into a mold. Don't let the world squish you into the mold and the thinking and the desires and the affections that they have for you. And every second of every day, the world is doing that through billboards, through advertisement, through television and movies. They're pressing you into a mold. And Paul says, don't let them do that. Don't live for what they live for. Purpose and resolve to live differently. That leads to the second point. If you want to be blessed by God, if you want to live life the way God intended for you to live it, resolve to live differently than the world. Resolve to think differently than them. Resolve to act differently than them. But it's not just about saying no to the world. It's about saying yes to the word. And that's the second point. Delight. If you want to live a blessed life, you must delight in God's word. This is verse 2. But this is the positive. We saw the negative. If you want to be blessed, don't do this. Verse 1. But instead, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. The relationship with somebody who is blessed by God, their relationship with the word involves three things. There's an emotional aspect to it, there's a cerebral aspect to it, and there's a perpetual aspect to it. Emotionally, you delight in the law of the Lord. You delight. Now, most people, when they think of laws, they don't think of, I will delight in that. I'm happy that there's laws around me. And so when you... When you read this word law, we tend to just think, if you're me, 
uh, a speed limit sign and a policeman. There's a law, and I can't break the law or else I'm in trouble. And laws just make me fearful because I want to make sure I don't get a ticket. Now, I can't take away from the do's and don'ts in the Bible. The Bible is filled with do's and don'ts. But that word law, maybe I can help your understanding of why we can delight in laws by understanding that word. That word law, you know the word in Hebrew, it's Torah. That's the noun, a law. The verb form of that word Torah most often in the Bible is translated as directs or guides. So a law in the noun, put it into a verb and it's directing or guiding. That changes my perspective of it because it's not just there to tell you what to do and what not to do. A law is there to help guide and direct you to live life the way it's intended to be lived. When I was in high school, I played baseball. I was trying to pursue baseball as my career. And um, Many of you know the name Frank Pastore. He, he passed away in a motorcycle accident, but he was uh, on radio, um, KKLA, for a while. He was my pitching coach for a while, and um, he was, used to play with the Cincinnati Reds, a uh, great pitcher, uh, believer, loved Jesus, uh, is with Jesus now, and we'll see him again one day. He was my pitching coach. My parents, bless their sweet souls, play, paid a lot of money for me to go to this man and pretty much for an hour be told everything I was doing wrong. That's just, that was the life of every week going to my pitching coach, pay money, please tell me how awful I am. That's what it was. And I gladly did it. I, my parents never once had to tell me, Patrick, it's time to go. Are you ready? I had my cleats. I had my glove. I had the ball. I had every, I was so excited to go to the pitching coach and pay money for him just to tell me, you're awful. Everything you're doing is wrong and we need to start all over again. Why? We do that. We would pay money. We pay money to tutors, people to help us fix what's not right in what we're doing so that we can enjoy doing things the right way. Again, I, there are laws in the Bible. I cannot take away from the do's and don'ts. There's a lot in there, and we need to abide by those. But if you can understand why they're there, they're not just there to slap your hand when you're doing something wrong. They're there to guide you in righteousness. They're there to guide you in blessing. And this man in Psalm 1 knows if I follow those laws, I'm directed into happiness. If I follow those laws, I'm directed into peace and satisfaction. Just think about, if this is David writing this psalm, if this is Solomon, just think about how they must have looked around at the neighboring countries. They're, they are kings, and they're looking around at these neighboring countries, and they're thinking, they don't have a clue how to run the country. They don't have a clue how to obey their God, their uh, just think about First Kings chapter 18. Remember uh, Elijah, the prophets of Baal? How did the prophets of Baal call upon their God? They're dancing. Is that going to work? They pray. Is that going to work? We don't know what our God wants. Let's start cutting ourselves. Is that going to work? We have no idea what he demands of us, what pleases him. That's why the psalmist delights in the law of the Lord, because he knows exactly what God wants. God is not a mystery in this way to him. He knows this is what pleases God, and this is what will give me lasting happiness. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Do you delight? Do you genuinely love? Do you genuinely delight? How can you tell? How can you tell if you delight in food? You can tell if you eat it, if you enjoy eating it, if you talk about it with other people, if you bring them over to eat the meal that you've prepared. It's not hard to tell what we delight in. What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? What do you talk to your friends about? Do you delight in the law 
of the Lord. Is God's word your food, your craving? Or do you delight in other things? We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. According to the Nielsen Company, the average adult over 18 spends four hours and 10 minutes watching live television every day. They spend 36 minutes watching a pre-recorded show on a DVR. They spend one hour and 46 minutes listening to music, two hours and 22 minutes using apps on their phone, 47 minutes using a tablet, and if you add up other categories like video games, surfing the web, things like that, you come to a total of 11 hours and 6 minutes interacting with some form of media a day. That's almost 12 hours every day interacting with some form of media. Now, I know that many of us interact with media for good to get us into the Word of God or to hear the Word of God. But maybe we can look through, as we did this morning in Sunday school, maybe we can look through our day and think, there's just 15 minutes I can... Stay off of Facebook. 20 minutes, I can stay off of Instagram. Maybe fast from using those things for a while. Listen to this. Instead of spending time in media, delight yourself in the law of the Lord and do it in little increments. If you have five minutes in your day, you can read the entire book of Obadiah or Philemon or Jude or 2nd and 3rd John together. If you have 10 minutes in your day, you can read the entirety of Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, 2 Peter. You can read any one of those. You just sit down and open it up and read it. If you have 15 minutes in your day, you can read the entirety of the book of Ruth or Joel or Malachi or Philippians or Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, James, 1 Peter, 1 John. Just 15 minutes. In just 12 minutes a day, you can read the whole Bible in a year. In just six minutes per day, you can read the entire New Testament over the course of six months. If you spend just 20 minutes per day, you can read all of Matthew through Acts in just one month, 20 minutes. But we're not going to do that if we don't delight in the law of the Lord. And as you think about this new year coming up, I I would just plead with you, have some form of a plan, not so you can check something off the list or just, I did something, not in some legalistic sense, but just making a plan because if you fail to make that plan, then you're planning to fail and you're reading. This man, if if you want to be like him and be blessed, you must delight in the law of the Lord. We delight in getting letters from friends. We delight in getting letters from loved ones over the Christmas season. You get mail from people you haven't talked to in a year, and you hear their stories. You put their Christmas card up, and you read their newsletter of what's gone on this last year. That excites us because we love these people. And if we love God, it will excite us to get into his word together. How can you increase your delight in the law of the Lord? Jeremiah 15, verse 16 says, Your words were found And I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Eat them, take them in, digest them, and they will become for you a joy and a delight in your heart. Martin Luther said the Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one drinks and drinks from it, the more it stimulates thirst. The Bible is like salt water, where when you drink it, it makes you more thirsty, but it's unlike salt water because when you drink it, the first drop satisfies you but you have to take it in. And that leads us to the second aspect of the relationship to the word. It's not only emotional, you're delighting in it. It's cerebral. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates. It's cerebral, you meditate. What's the picture that comes to your mind when you think of meditation? Most people tend to think of some skinny woman out on the beach wearing all white, 
sitting cross-legged going like this, right? That's what we think of when we think of meditation. That's not what meditation is. Actually, biblically, that's the opposite of what meditation is. Meditation is not emptying your mind. Meditation is filling your mind with the truth of God's word and then pondering over it and thinking about it. The word for meditates in verse 2 is used elsewhere to talk about uh, cattle that are lowing, that are murmuring. It's used of a lion growling in the Old Testament or a dove cooing or in the old King James hooting. <laughs> Doves hoot. It can be translated for a human to mutter under their breath. It can be translated for grumbling. The idea of meditating is you fill your mind with the scriptures, you put it into your heart, and then throughout the day, you're just making noises as you're speaking those words in your mouth. You're contemplating the word of God. That's why Joshua chapter 1 says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate. It won't depart from your mouth because you're meditating. It's always there. You're chewing on it. You're digesting it over and over and over again. So your relationship with the word is not just delighting in an emotional sense. It's cerebral. You have to think about it. You have to spend time thinking, pondering, meditating. You submit to its authority. You don't stand over it. You go underneath it and submit to it. And finally, not only emotionally, cerebrally, but thirdly, perpetually. This is happening all the time. He meditates in the law day and night. Day and night. It's not that you don't think of anything else, but it's that your mind is constantly going to the Word as you think of those other things. Your mind is so saturated with the Scriptures that you've developed a biblical worldview such that when you see something, you can think, what does the Bible say about that thing? This is what we talked about this morning in Sunday school with Colossians chapter 3 that we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us so that we're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving. We're teaching and we're admonishing because we have the word of God. We hear what somebody's saying and we can say, what does the word of God say about that? And we can encourage them in the truth. So we ponder it, we meditate, but we do it perpetually. You're seeing everything in light of the grid of scripture. And for those of you who do this, and then you share the gospel with somebody who's a non-believer, my wife and I have had this experience recently many times where you listen to their worldview on display. And I don't want to minimize anybody's worldview, but there is one worldview that ultimately makes sense of everything. And there's no question marks in the worldview. And that's a biblical worldview. There are worldviews out there that when you ask questions of people as you're sharing the gospel and you genuinely want to know where they're coming from, you ask questions and you realize that they don't really have a worldview. They, their worldview is not coherent. It doesn't fit. It becomes hypocritical. That's why as you dive into the Bible and the Bible becomes your grid and you see the entirety of the world through that, you will see, oh, this makes sense. And as you see it making sense, it's going to drive you with love and delight to go back and back so that it makes more sense, so that the world just, instead of being this black and white screen, it becomes three-dimensional color. You see everything and it all makes sense because it's all through the lens of Scripture. That cycle of seeing the world through the Scriptures, it making sense through the Bible, going back to the Bible, finding out what the Word says about the world, that cycle produces an endless delight. That's why I love going to this book. That delight is seen, I think, one of the most pivotal scenes. It's probably one of the most memorable scenes in The Fiddler on the Roof when uh, Tevye is singing, If I Were a Rich Man. The best verse in that whole song. 
is when he stops dancing. Not that the dancing's bad, but he stops dancing and he almost starts to cry. And he says this, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the learned books with the holy men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. That's what I want. I want to just sit and pour over the word. So if you resolve to live differently than the world and you delight yourself in God's word in an emotional sense, cerebral sense, and perpetual sense, you're going to live a life of blessing, a life that is lived the way that God wants and intended for life to be lived. That brings us to the third and final aspect. If we're going to ask, how are we supposed to live life the way God intended for us to live it? Number one, you can't live like the world. Resolve to live differently. Number two, delight yourself in the word of God. And number three, enjoy blessing from God and satisfaction in God. Enjoy blessing from him and find your satisfaction in him. This is verse three. This man who is blessed will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. He prospers. The Bible speaks of prospering. It's not prosperity gospel, and I think you can see that in verse 3. There's differences in verse 3 from the prosperity gospel. First, you're not planted in some beautiful place. The word for planted, firmly planted in verse 3, is actually transplanted. And streams of water is an irrigation canal in a grid format to fill this tree's roots with water because it's in an arid and dry location. This isn't prosperity gospel saying that everything's going to go well for you. This is saying God's going to take you and place you in a, in a location that's difficult. It's arid. It's dry. And apart from him cutting out some irrigation canals and filling that with water to supply all your needs, you will die. It's a needy place where you go to God's word to be fed. So it's not the prosperity gospel. Second, the psalmist says you bear fruit in your season. In its season. That means there's seasons where you don't bear fruit. There are seasons that are difficult. There are seasons that are tough. Just ask the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16. He's stoned to death in Lystra. Somehow, whether supernaturally raised from the dead or they just thought he was dead, but he actually wasn't dead. He gets up, he walks out, he comes back, he keeps preaching the gospel. He's finally kicked out. He goes to Philippi, and in Philippi, he's thrown into jail, beaten, and is a bloodied mess, chained, and just starts singing with his friend Silas. That's exactly what's happening here. Prospering, blessed, satisfied in the midst of an arid desert because you have everything that you need. In Jesus. So this is not the prosperity gospel, which is an absolutely false heretical gospel. This is gospel prosperity. This is true prosperity. And I think that last word prospers in verse three. If you understand what that word means, I think this prosperity makes sense. Prosper. If I can give you a definition for this word prospers, the definition would be fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. To prosper in the Bible is to fulfill the purpose for which it was made. For instance, the Bible speaks of weapons prospering. Weapons are made and the weapons prosper on the battlefield. That means they did their job. They did what they intended to do. They were made for a purpose and they fulfilled that purpose. Ezekiel chapter 17, there's a tree that prospers. You plant the tree and it starts to grow and yield fruit. Then it did what it was supposed to do. 
Isaiah 55 tells us that the Bible prospers, right? It goes forth, it will accomplish everything that it's supposed to accomplish. What it intends, it's intended to do, it will do. So what are we here for? We're designed by God, we're made by God, we're made in the image of God for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God. And if you do that, then you are prospering. You're doing exactly what God intended and designed for you to do. That's what blessing is and that's what prospering is. To prosper is to fulfill that purpose that God made you for, that God intended for you to do. Prospering, therefore, biblically, has very little to do with economic abundance or your social status. It's knowing what God requires of you and what God made you to do. Just think about, why would anybody purchase a Ferrari or a Lamborghini in Southern California when you just park out on the 405 forever? And that poor car, if it could talk, could say, why aren't we going fast? Why are we constantly going slow and stopping, slow and stopping, slow and stopping? That, that's what other cars are designed for. That's what little cars are designed for. That's what cars with not a V20,000 is designed to do. This is Little cars are meant for that purpose. But a Lamborghini and a Ferrari, you, you, you take that to the Autobahn, and then it just, it's, it's thrilling because it's doing exactly what it was intended to do. You and I, if we do not live life the way God intended us to live it, which again, he made us in his image for the purpose of glorifying him through everything that we do. If we glorify him in what we're doing, we're doing what he designed us to do and we will find satisfaction. If we do not live life in a way where we're intending to glorify God with what we're doing, we will not prosper. We won't be prospering and we won't be blessed. This man is happy because he's doing exactly what God has called him to do. There's just no better feeling when you know God made me for this and I'm doing it exactly the way he wants me to do it. I actually think Paul had Psalm 1 in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Actually, turn there just for a second. Turn to Romans chapter 12. I want you to see this because, again, I think Paul's mind in the Jewish scriptures so steeped in the scriptures I think he is going to bring to bear these three points. Verse 2, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Resolve to live differently than this world. That's what Psalm 1 says. Don't live like this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Meditate on the word of God. Be transformed. Delight in the word so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You may prove what the will of God is. Don't live like the world, delight in the word, and therefore you can live out the purpose that God has intended for you to live. You can prosper. I think Romans chapter 12, verse 2 perfectly parallels Psalm 1. That's what the righteous is like. That's what characterizes this righteous man. That's how we are blessed. But the psalm's not done. Back in Psalm chapter 1, verse 4. What about the wicked? What about the wicked? What are they like? We've seen the righteous and what they look like and how they act. What about the wicked? Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're not so. The opposite of everything that the righteous person is. Just think about everything that characterizes this righteous person. The wicked are the exact opposite. So they don't prosper. They don't achieve the purpose that God designed them for. They're constantly doing the opposite of what God designed them for. They're not immersed in the word, emotionally, cerebrally, or perpetually. 
They don't avoid the evil influence of the world. They walk in it, they stand in it, they sit in it, and therefore they are not lastingly happy or blessed. The wicked are not so. They're the exact opposite. Instead of being firmly planted by streams of water, they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. That doesn't really mean much to us because we're not typically threshing wheat. I don't have a last time that I threshed wheat in my life. But I know what threshing wheat looks like. We've talked about it with Gideon, right, in the book of Judges. You take a bunch of wheat, you throw it up into the air, and the heavy, good particles of that wheat will fall down, and the wind will blow away the chaff, the bad part, the part that is worthless. There's no point in having it. You've got to thresh wheat so that it will do that. It will get all the bad things away. The wind just drives them away. The wicked are, therefore, weightless. They're light. Just toss them into the air and they blow away. And they're worthless. They have no purpose. They can't achieve anything that's lasting or satisfying. They're not living to the glory of God. Glory, kavod, we talked about that over Christmas. Uh, Heavy, weighty, there's a substance to it. There's gravity to it. And these people have no gravity. They They just blow away. Look at the irony that the author of this psalm includes here. There's beautiful poetic irony. There's three qualities that are described for the righteous person. There's only one for the wicked person. There's 17 Hebrew words that are used to describe the tree alone in this passage. There's only six words in Hebrew that describe the chaff. The author, it's like the author's trying to say, how much can you really say about chaff anyway? It's just chaff. It just, there's no point to it. It just blows away. The wicked are not so. They're not living a blessed life, a happy, truly happy life. Therefore, what's the eternal destiny? Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They can't stand. They will be blown away like chaff. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's an intimate knowledge. He knows them intimately. He has a, a relationship with them where he says, you are mine and nothing can take you out of my hand. But to the wicked, he says, you're not in my hand and anything can take you. Anything can. For the righteous person, we are cared for in a Romans 8 kind of way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He will care for us with every step that we take. For the wicked, they do not have that promise. Every step they take might be their last. They might falter. They might fail. The wicked person will not be cared for in their death. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. They will die. They're not cared for. They're not known in life. They're not known in death. And that's the end of the psalm. And again, beautifully poetic. It starts with Asher, which is A in the Hebrew alphabet, and it ends with the word uh, that starts with uh, T, Tav, which is the last Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's basically A to Z. This encompasses all of life. This psalm encompasses everything. We asked at the beginning of our time together, why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why is it at the beginning? Because Psalm 1 makes you, forces you to make a choice. Who are you? Are you righteous? Are you wicked? For those of you who love Jesus and delight in his word, maybe there's something that you have to abandon this morning. Maybe there's something in the way that you've thought in a worldly sense that today is the day to ask God to help you, to grant repentance, to turn from worldly influence, worldly thinking, and turn to righteousness. Maybe there's some aspect of your life that you need to to throw away and put on delighting in the word of God more and more and more. 
What do you have to embrace as a righteous person? Living in prosperity, living for that which God intended you to live. Knowing your purpose in life according to the word of God and doing exactly what God wants you to do. That's how you will have joy and blessing. The righteous, those who are enviable because of their blessedness, they love the law of God. They delight in it and meditate in it. Spurgeon says, walk with God and you cannot mistake the road. You have infallible wisdom to direct you, permanent love to comfort you, and eternal power to defend you. And if you resolve to live differently than the world, if you pursue what God has intended for you to do, if you delight in his word above anything else in this world, I promise you, you will never regret that, ever. You will never regret doing that. But maybe you look at Psalm 1 and you say, I've failed time and time again. I am not righteous. I am wicked. I don't do these things. I'm struggling with that. And that's why Psalm 1 ultimately pictures the perfectly righteous man. Remember, Jesus said when he was on the earth, my food is to do the will of my father. I do everything that he tells me to do perfectly. I'm never influenced by the world to sin. I'm tempted, but I always say no to that. And we'll talk about that next Sunday in Hebrews chapter 4, our great high priest that we can always go to. But if you are here this morning and you look at this passage, you look at this psalm and you think, where is my eternal destiny? And you try to look inward to see, am I a good person? Am I doing things that are considered righteous? Can I just plead with you? There's nothing that you can do on your own. There's nothing anyone can do on their own to get to God, to make themselves righteous on their own ability. Jesus Christ is the perfectly righteous man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He came to be born as a human, to live our lives for us, to win for us a perfect record of righteousness so that though we are sinful people to the core, God the Father can see us as if we had lived Jesus' perfection because Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had sinned my sinful life. He was penalized on the cross in my place. He died in my place. He bore the penalty for sin, and then he rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and offering forgiveness for all who would believe. That's the gospel, and that's the perfectly righteous person that this psalm ultimately points us to. Yes, pleasure is found in the law of God, but it's found in the law of God because of who the law points us to. I love the word of God. I love studying words because they show me the word, the word made flesh to dwell among us. So yes, let us apply ourselves wholly to the text and let's apply the text wholly to ourselves. But let's do so clinging to Christ. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we look at Psalm 1 and as we look at 2019, that this would be a year like never before. We aren't duped by the world. We resolve to live differently, to not live for what they live for. We, that we would just, that we'd have a different flavor about us because the Holy Spirit lives and resides in us. That we would delight in the word of God, that we would hear God's voice drown out every other voice, not in some audible sense, but this book would be our direction, our guide, and our delight every day. And that as we do those things, we would enjoy and be satisfied in the prospering that God brings, 
not in some economic sense, but knowing that we're doing exactly what God intended and designed for us to do, living life the way God intended. Only then can we look at our eternal destiny and know as we're clinging to Christ, he's going to hold us fast and we're eternally secure. The wicked are not so. Which eternal destiny is yours? Are you clinging to the only truly righteous one this morning? My prayer is that you are, and let me pray to that end. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word this morning. Thank you for such a clear text. It's black and white. There's no wiggle room. There's no fuzzy area. There's no gray area. And God, there's a a stark contrast for us this morning to assess where are we in this psalm. How is our 2018? How will our 2019 be? May we plan in these moments with intentionality to delight in your word, resolving to live differently than the world, and enjoying the satisfaction that can only be enjoyed by living life the way you intended for us to live it. God, thank you for your word, which guides and directs us. We trust it. We want to walk with you every day in it. And we want to be happy in Jesus. Magnifying him and glorifying him for all the world to see. We pray it in his name. Amen.